Welcome to episode 89 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today. Uh, I'm very excited about this. Our guest commentator today is Mark Shuttleworth, uh, uh, entrepreneur, the founder of Canonical, which uh, is the sponsor of Ubuntu Linux, the most successful of the uh, Linux brands. Uh, I got to know him. We've been friends since the 90s um, when I gave him uh, advice in his first startup uh, uh, thought, uh, uh, which uh, he sold uh, for, I don't know, half a billion to a billion dollars worth of stock. Uh, um, and in the most exciting thing a client has ever done for me in a successful representation, flew me out to Baikonur so that I could watch him take off to uh, uh, orbit and uh, get a little uh, cosmonaut training myself. It was it was great. Uh, uh, and uh, probably most importantly for our listeners, uh, he thinks that almost everything I believe about um, technology policy is absolutely nuts. Well, I, as I, do the rest of us. <laughs> there we go. As long as I'm in good company in that regard. <laughs> All right. Uh, and uh, I'm also joined, as you probably heard, by uh, uh, the uh, the doubting Michael, uh, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office, uh, and by Alan Cohn, formerly the head of strategy for DHS, second in charge of DHS policy, now of counsel to Steptoe. Uh, uh, welcome, Alan. Thank you. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with the NSA and DHS uh, uh, and recipient of no credit whatsoever in my uh, 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 among my uh, peers here at Steptoe, uh, uh, notwithstanding <laughs> which I have the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's get started. Uh, a, the, uh, uh, the NSA 215 metadata program is getting quite a workout in the courts and maybe uh, uh, elsewhere. Uh, um, Judge Leon, uh, he of the uh, exclamation point fame in his attack on uh, the program, uh, finally, uh, after chasing this ambulance for uh, weeks, was able to uh, get out an opinion in the last two weeks of the program's existence saying, it's still illegal. Um, a, and uh, Immediately, uh, the uh, uh, the government took him up. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, they asked for an emergency stay and got it, right? Yeah, you know, he should have just tried to run more time off the clock. It, it reminds me of my Giants yesterday leaving just uh, a few seconds too long for the Patriots to come back um, after they had scored to go ahead. That makes the Justice uh, yeah, Department Tom Brady, doesn't it? Uh yeah, that's a that's a hard analogy for me to, to keep because uh, I think they generally play by the rules uh, at the Department of Justice. But in any event, uh, yeah, the D.C. Circuit granted an administrative stay, which is really it's kind of a uh, a stay preliminary to a a full preliminary injunction. So they're just allowing themselves enough time to to hear the case. Uh, the um, uh, the reply brief from Clayman is due uh, as we speak, or seven minutes ago, technically. So the court could rule on the full request for a stay from the Justice Department uh, any minute now or within a couple of days. I mean, it, it, you know, in the long run, it's all sort of meaningless because the program expires in 13 days as it is. But clearly, Judge Leon wants to have the last word. He wants a decision on the books, finding that the program is probably unconstitutional. I say probably because, remember, this is all just a, uh, on a motion for a preliminary injunction, so there's no ultimate finding on the merits. But he wants his decision on the merits of the stay request, at least on the books, and we'll see if the D.C. Circuit uh, denies him what he's been seeking all this time. Well, I, I think I think we probably should say, in, in keeping with your analogy, that uh, uh, it's likely the D.C. Circuit will leave him deflated. <laughs> I, I think that's a fair bet, and... and and I think that's a fair analogy too. So I, the, the the one thing that I uh, have said just today, because a reporter asked me about it, is uh, um, you know the 215 program. When I testified a couple of years ago about this, I said uh, um, the 215 program was designed for a time when uh, you have an enemy who has a safe haven, who can recruit people, plan a, a big operation, send people to the country uh, to carry it out, and then carry it out. Uh, uh, with minimal but 
you know, almost always some communication back home. Uh, and, uh, uh, that's what happened with 9-11 and we haven't had, we haven't faced that situation since then, but, uh, uh, the example I gave was Mumbai, the, where you send a gun, bunch of people in with automatic weapons and start killing folks. Uh, and what happened in Paris is exactly that. Uh, and uh, ISIS is uh, claiming that they'll do the same to uh, to other countries. And so in an odd way, we're getting rid of this program, assuming we do, just when uh, uh, Daesh or ISIS has sort of demonstrated that it can do this uh, uh, and intends to do it. Um, so I, I, I think that if nothing else, we're going to see a real focus, hopefully in the next two weeks, on whether the new system that we put in place uh, in place of the 215 program actually does the job. And uh, I think it's fair to ask the Justice Department and NSA whether they actually are confident that the new program is going to be up and running in, in time to replace the old one. Yeah, because all the argumentation and uh, you know on on this case has been whether uh, to interfere with the transition period. And again, we only have 13 days left of transition until the new program is supposed to be fully up and operational. Uh, and I haven't seen a lot of discussion of how that's going. I mean, I, I have seen testimony from government officials saying that, that they're confident that the new system will be adequate, but uh, I suppose we really need to wait and, and see. And part of the issue is going to be whether the new system will work if there's not a mandatory data retention requirement that requires the, the telecoms to, to hold the data long enough so that searches can go back a period of years rather than just a few months or maybe a year or two that data is kept for billing purposes. So if there were holdouts among the uh, telcos, and there might have been, uh, uh, about how long they're going to do it and having an understanding about that, my guess is that uh, after Paris there's going to be much more focus on saying, no, we're going to have an understanding that uh, we get at least 18 months' worth of data. Right, right. You know, I'm curious to see after Paris, too, uh, do the French have a, a metadata program that they're utilizing now to quickly draw links between uh, uh, some of the uh, terrorists? Um, you know, usually what happens is all the criticism is directed at the U.S. program by the Europeans, and then we find out after the fact, well, they've been doing the same thing just without any court involvement at all, and so there's no public awareness of the programs. Well, that's that, that for sure. That that is uh, what we can expect. Uh, in fact, I we probably ought to. Uh, uh, well, briefly, we ought to mention that uh, there's already a reopening of the encryption debate to some degree. I think the New York Times reported that uh, some anonymous source uh, on the European side said that they believed that encryption uh, had been used uh, uh, by the attackers, but that was pretty pretty um, general uh, and a little uncertain. Uh, but my guess is we'll see this debate revived as a result of Paris. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. Um, and how how strongly strongly it gets revived will depend on whether there was actual use of encryption. So yeah, uh, uh, let me let me ask Mark, uh, what do you think uh, we're going to see by way of a debate about encryption now that they, uh, after the Paris attacks? Well, it's it's on the on the table already in the UK. There was a proposal that uh, British companies would be disallowed from selling products in the UK unless they themselves could undo... But they dropped that. They did, um, because sanity prevails. And at the end of the day, the technology behaves in a particular way, you know, much like gravity, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. um, so there'll be a debate. There may be a swing in the pendulum. But at the end of the day, I don't think the facts have changed since since we met each other in the 90s. Right. No, it's the same same old fight. The stuff either works or it doesn't, and mm -hmm. if it works, it works for everybody. And policing um, policing is policing one way or the other. It, on the on the metadata front, you know, I think it has to be said that you know, no matter how you spin it, at the end of the day, you are in a box where you're trying to clean up after the fact. Right. right. You are going after the fact. Uh, to figure out who was talking to who. And that's very different to kind of preventative ma maintenance, right? Right. Mm -hmm.
No, quite right. Uh, so the other thing that I thought was interesting uh, was that Microsoft has announced that they're going to give their EU customers an ability to uh, store data, Microsoft Cloud data, uh, in uh, uh, Germany, guaranteed, and that they were going to have uh, Deutsche Telekom act as sort of the the keeper of the data, so that uh, you could you could rely on Deutsche Telekom to uh, um, ensure, in a very Teutonic way, that private uh, data was perfectly protected. I thought it was interesting, and, and Microsoft clearly is excited about this as a possibility. Yeah, it's it's you know a response to pressures from a lot of different uh, uh, directions. It responds to uh, pressure from. European uh, customers for uh, privacy from American law enforcement. It reminds, it responds to the uh, the Ireland case in the Second Circuit, in which the U.S. government is asserting the ability to to serve a search warrant and thereby get data held by American-owned companies abroad. If they structure this correctly, they'd be able to respond to the FBI by saying, "Hey, we don't possess, uh, own, or control the data that's held." Uh, by Deutsche Telekom, even though you know we are ultimately partners in the in the business, uh, so it's 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 interesting, an interesting business move by Microsoft while all this stuff is going on uh, here and in in the EU, and you know also responding to the safe harbor decision from the ECJ. So uh, because now there's no they don't have to send the data to the U.S. for storage. So, Michael, you you were part of the litigation uh, that Microsoft had with uh, of the Justice Department over the Irish uh, uh, subpoenas or warrants. Uh, um, do you think that uh, this deal, where Microsoft says the the data is in the cloud in Germany and it's overseen by Deutsche Telekom, does that uh, really? make it impossible for the U.S. government to make the arguments they've been making uh, where the data is stored in Ireland? The devil's in the details. It, it really depends a lot on uh, both what technical access Microsoft maintains uh, to the data uh, and also what the corporate relationship is and how that's structured between Microsoft and whatever the entity is that's actually running the data centers. Because this comes up in what we call the Bank of Nova Scotia line of cases where courts assess whether uh, the recipient of a subpoena in the U.S. has possession, custody, or control of data outside the U.S. If it, if it is deemed to, to have possession, custody, or control, then a court typically will say, you've got to turn over the data. I don't care where it's stored, and I don't care about what foreign law protects that data. That's the way those cases usually come out. But if Microsoft can make a credible argument that because of the way uh, its corporate relationship is structured uh, and its network is structured, it doesn't have possession, custody, or control in any meaningful way over that data. And I think it's it's got a chance of, of being able to withstand a subpoena or a search warrant or whatever else it's served yeah. with. My, my assumption is that you really have to, uh, uh, that Microsoft has done a good job of structuring this arrangement and they structured it precisely to avoid the problems that uh, um, Microsoft has had with the Irish case. So my guess is they've done everything that they can to build a, uh, uh, a subpoena-proof um, uh, storage system outside the U.S. The good news, yeah, though, you'd have, to, you'd have to assume that, I think. The good news, though, is that Deutsche Telekom, as a very heavily regulated entity, is going to do exactly what their regulators tell them to do. Oh, absolutely. And so due process and intergovernment relations and all of those things should go smoothly, and, and I think everybody will perceive that to be a fair deal. What amazes me in this conversation is that there doesn't seem to be much energy spent on thinking about what it would feel like if the shoe was on the other foot, right? When when uh, global companies start getting told by other governments that they're going to hand over data to which they plausibly have some tenuous access, right, on American citizens, I think the reaction would be very, very different. It's, it's, it's interesting. So far, that just has not come up. I keep expecting it, too. I, uh, you, can't, you can't have a serious <coughs> d- debate about this without thinking through the consequences of setting a precedent. Right. And 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 that was argued pretty extensively uh, um, in the Irish case. But uh, uh, I've been surprised how little worry Americans have had about the possibility that all of this data will be seized and uh, on Americans and taken taken abroad. 
may not be aware of just how much interesting technology and interesting services you have have a similar case now where you have uh, the the implanting of of suspicious stuff on people's browsers when they happen to visit China, right? It's a very similar set of questions. Yeah, and and I've written a lot about the uh, uh, concerns about the fact that if you visit any site inside China, uh, you're likely to get, uh, or you're at, at risk of having malware injected into the JavaScript that you're browsing. Uh, a very interesting uh, problem that, that, again, again, surprisingly l- a lack of interest, uh, an assumption that, well, it'll all work out because the U.S. controls so much of this technology. I think that's the, uh, uh, the assumption. Well, uh, we ought to talk quickly about the safe harbor. The, 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 there is a negotiation ongoing to see if the safe harbor can be revived, and I'd say we've got a good shot at doing that, although the negotiations are not over. Um, it looks as though, from the hints that are coming out, uh, uh, that no one's going to be expecting a change in U.S. law other than this um, judicial redress thing that gives Europeans a right to sue under the Privacy Act, uh, uh, but no changes to national security law. And so all of the fighting is going to be over the enforcement mechanisms. Uh, um, so um, it, it, possibilities about whether this should be a memorandum of agreement or just an exchange of letters. So how binding will it be? Uh, uh, will the Europeans have a right to come over and inspect NSA's systems, uh, and what will they do about that, uh, uh, and whether uh, U.S. companies should be required to do a kind of transparency report about uh, the uh, intelligence community's assets, uh, uh, and uh, that effort uh, uh, is is another, uh, you know, the, the uh, companies are saying, why should we have to uh, disclose the number of intelligence um, warrants that were served on us. That's just adding to our burden. Uh, weren't we the guys who lobbied this uh, this whole problem into the attention of the uh, American public? All of those are overcomable, and, and as I see it, uh, uh, and my guess is that it will be. It's going to be overcome, and probably the Paris attacks have made it more likely the U.S. will hold firm on these last set of concessions uh, and that Europe will be more inclined to agree to uh, to terms to get a, a sort of safe harbor 2.0 up in the next uh, month or so. That's my guess. I don't know. Uh, uh, Michael, Alan? Yeah, yeah. I think we're, we're coming up fast on that end of January deadline that the Article 29 working party uh, effectively set. Uh, so it's, I think it's going to be a tough, uh, tough deadline to meet with anything substantial, but, but we'll see. And I, I think it's more the last thing that you said, Stuart, which is the, what's going to be the, the, the impact of the Paris attacks. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the U.S. holding firm on some of its positions, and I think you'll see a concomitant European um, disinterest in pushing some of the more aggressive, uh, aggressive pieces of what they want. What's interesting of the news that kind of dribbles out week after week, the EU commissioner kind of... Uh, right, she, keeps, you know. <laughs> she just keeps talking, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, it's amazing, and kind of dribbles out each each bit. Jarova, um, is that a Vera Jarova? Yeah, Vera Jarova. Um, what's interesting here is kind of, as you alluded to, the sh- kind of some of the shifting of responsibility onto the companies. First, the making some of the voluntary reporting that companies are doing now, making that mandatory. Uh-huh. Um, which has some problems, and then also wanting a, a qualitative explanation about the requests. That's one of those things that, number one, I can't see the U.S. Uh, agreeing to, and, and given what's just happened, I can't see the Europeans really fighting, ho- for, it. fighting for that at the end of the day. Yeah, that's my guess. Uh, so there, uh, you know, that, that means there will be a deal. Uh, and there'll be a deal by Christmas or certainly New Year's. Uh, um, and uh, exactly what the deal is is a little uncertain. I, I, get, I, I saw in one article that reciprocity is still alive. This is a famous Baker principle from the early PNR negotiations where I said, uh, why, should, uh, why should the only... Uh, um, uh, intelligence agency in the world that gets, gets overseen by the Europeans be 
uh, the American intelligence uh, uh, operation, and apparently we're starting to see that argument from the U.S. negotiators saying, well, you know, if if this is sauce for the goose, that ought to be sauce for the gander. Uh, and my guess is the gander is pretty uncomfortable right now uh, with uh, new limits on intelligence collection. Yes, exactly, and, es- and especially having companies disclose kind of the, the conversations that they've had right. with the European intelligence agencies about what they want. I would note that uh, that uh, Vera Jarova seems to at least be keeping her, her media pipeline open. Uh, that she noted that generally speaking, the things that remain open that remain to be negotiated are the ones that the court emphasized. So yep. I think she's she's teasing that we're getting to the good stuff. Yes, so. exactly. Well, uh, very quickly, uh, last topic: uh, um, new rules coming out uh, uh, from New York uh, on cybersecurity, banks, insurers. Uh, Michael, uh, uh, any surprises in that? Uh, no, not really a surprise, except, you know, it's it just, I think it's really instructive that, that while Congress is continuing to debate uh, legislation that would just foster, at best, information sharing, New York regulators, once again, are stealing a march on them. Uh, and, you know, the New York Department of Financial Services is proposing regulations that would go much farther than Gramm-Leach-Bliley in specifying the sorts of measures that financial institutions subject to the department's regulation would have to institute. Um, things like multi-factor authentication, annual penetration testing, quarterly vulnerability assessments, maintenance of an audit trail. Um, they're, they're getting very much down in the weeds, which federal financial regulators have tended not to do. Um, you know, they, they uh, uh, express their requirements in much more general terms, uh, typically. So it, it's interesting. They, they, they're Department sent this memo to all the federal financial regulators, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, uh, and others, uh, basically saying, we want to do this in a collaborative way, so you know, join us in doing it, but here's what we're thinking about. So it's going to be interesting to see whether uh, there's pushback and what the response is of the department to such a pushback, if there is any. Well, it, you know, New York always feels um, a little competitive with Washington about uh, uh, regulatory and legal and prosecutorial matters, and so uh, I guess it isn't a surprise that they're competing here as well. Uh, so let's let's jump into our our interview because I I think this will be a lot of fun and really uh, uh, quite interesting uh, uh, because you know. I installed Ubuntu. I don't know what it, what the the animal was. It was probably the D's or the F's, uh, and I've I've been running it ever since on a little netbook. Uh, um, and it was it started as a substitute for Windows, uh, and, uh, uh, and and a very successful compared to other Linux uh, uh, versions uh, uh, substitute, um, but. In the 10 years, we're up to 10 years now, uh, since it came out, uh, you've managed uh, to insinuate Ubuntu into every part of the new um, infrastructure for computing, right? So the, uh, it, it, because it was so easy to use on the desktop, lots of people were used to doing it, and so when they started running things on the cloud, they just said, well, I'm going to run a Linux uh, 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 version. I might as well make it Ubuntu. I'll just... So everybody who... Goes on the uh, you know, Amazon Web Services or Google or Azure uh, tends to they don't have to but they tend to use Ubuntu and and so that locks people in further. Um, Ubuntu also runs that's the, those are the guests. It also runs the hosts. Uh, so the cloud is just full of Ubuntu. And then you, uh, I, I have to say, I, I had my doubts about this one. Maybe I still do. You decided you were going to do a, a phone that ran Ubuntu uh, and could run your computer at the same time and in the same way. Uh, whether that's going to work, it drove you into Internet of Things uh, uh, work. And so now when you look over the, the, the range of computing futures that we have, it's going to go from the Internet of Things to the cloud uh, with a brief stop for coffee at the desktop. Uh, and uh, so... I, what I really wanted to do was kind of talk a little bit about where you think the future of computing is going and where the privacy and security issues are, that we're going to struggle with the next 10 years are coming from. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very good narrative arc as to how we got to where we are. You know, we really did focus on trying to make 
something that people could use every day that they would have confidence in that would be secure. And then by being the thing that they use every day, as they essentially went and invented the cloud or went and trailblazed their way into IoT, smart drones, all sorts of interesting things, they've carried us with them. Mm-hmm. And, and our job in all of that really is to make something that's crisp, clean, usable, and enables them to go do that that kind of trailblazing. So uh, this I just uh, is a reflection of my ignorance, but surely the kind of Linux you need to run a, a smart dust and little sensors is different from what you need to, to, to form the basis of an entire uh, cloud infrastructure as a, as a host. I, do you have to change it? Do you have to take little pieces of it and then add new stuff? How do, how do you actually make this work in all of those contexts? Well, you're referring to IoT, the, the idea of connected devices and this this new wave of disruption where entrepreneurs, technologists are essentially looking at every industry again, just like they did with the web, just like they did with mobile, and asking, you know, how can I disrupt that industry by inserting smart devices everywhere? Um, and you're absolutely right. The kinds of devices that they talk about span this huge spectrum from you know, pretty traditional servers, really, all the way down to incredibly small things that draw energy from ambient sources. We specifically would look at all of that and say, just the slice which is going to run third-party software, where you actually get benefits from having a trusted operating system that's separate from the provider the, ah, of the device. Okay, so it, it's basically if if you have an Internet of Things device that you want to run sort of like you run a desktop. That is to say, you'd say, I, there's three things I really have to do, three applications I have to run, and I need a general purpose operating system so I can run them. Right, but don't be fooled that, that, that it doesn't have to look like a PC to right. actually be a PC. That, that very classy looking device on this desk, which is listening in on every conversation that happens in mm-hmm. this room, is essentially going to be a little PC running Linux. It has a camera and a phone. And most institutions are looking at that now and start to say, I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that I have absolutely no idea where the software on that thing came from, no idea how I can fix it. So if we can start to treat that class of device as something that we can manage, that we can audit, that we can secure, that we can have policy around, uh, that's very, very attractive. And yes, that doesn't get us onto the light bulb, but it's essentially the one box in the building that will be controlling all the light bulbs that is particularly interesting economically. Okay, got it. So you you wouldn't necessarily want the the light bulb to have to be reprogrammable because there aren't that many apps you run on a light bulb, but you would want to be able to say, I have a communication mechanism between the light bulb and the Internet that also could run my doorbell. Right, and that gateway typically is going to be something that runs apps. And so as soon as you have an app ecosystem... You're starting to separate out the people who are innovating at the level of the application from the people who are innovating at the level of the operating system. And you also create that management pressure from the institution to say, I need to make sure that these things will all work together. I need certification, assurance, trust, security, all of those good things. So the the wrap on the Internet of Things, to the extent that I understand it, and the security is you will never have security on the Internet of Things if you cannot up grade the system that the uh, uh, that the device is running because no system is perfect precisely you know it will come out of the factory have with problems exactly that you're only going to learn about later so yes we just had this delicious sort of roundabout at the fcc who came out with language that sort of suggested they were nervous about the ability to replace software on devices. Understandably, given their mission, they need to essentially make sure that everything works with everything else. And if you can replace the software, what could you possibly do? But in fact, they needed to go further and say, okay, we actually want you to be able to, or they should go further and say, we really want you to explain how you're going to deliver security updates to all of these devices that are plugged into every network and listening into every conversation. And then on top of that, we need to be able to say how we can, from a regulatory point of view, make sure that some of those updates enforce regulatory policy, right? But the rest give you security and confidence in the, in the management. But that means that you really, uh, you, you, you really have to have something like an operating system for, for the devices, right? Uh, right. And historically, embedded devices, the line between the software and the hardware was completely blurred. So right. everyone was a snowflake. You, you wouldn't think of updating you know, today's generation of, of boxes on the wall. But the next generation really are PCs. It's a server. And the interesting thing about them is 
You know, today all of your servers are in big data centers with professionals watching them, but here we're going to be sticking servers in the attic, in the walls, in the basement, in the... And then forgetting them. And then forgetting them. We won't know they're there. They're not not a a personal device that's in your pocket and you can expect someone to look at it every day, nor are they, you know, these huge data centers which are super professionally managed and watched. And that creates both tremendous risk... Um, but I'm not a fearmonger, right? Mm-hmm. It, it essentially creates a new class of computing, and it's interesting to try and f- figure out how to support that, the innovation in that, and the and the operational practices required. So, where do you think that you know, looking out five years, where do you think the choices that people who are building Internet of Things infrastructures are? What are the hard things they're going to have to decide? How is uh, um, how is security going to play into that? Because, you know, our experience is that uh, security is one of those, oh, shit, moments. Oh, <laughs> I, you know, I should have thought I of got that. the stuff working, <laughs> and now what? No. Um, that's pretty much exactly right. I think the good news is that because at heart these things are little servers, a lot of established practice will be brought to bear. So you think that we'll end up with a, a, a client-server architecture in the Internet of Things as opposed to a bunch of competing uh, operating systems? Well, we've seen this this sort of bifurcation where you have the cloud, mm-hmm. it's essentially modern word for data centers, and the client. And what we're now creating is something in between. It's neither personal nor centralized, right. and so it's a new thing. But at heart, this class of stuff is still... Um, driven by the same sorts of dynamics. And so I think, at least our thesis is that if people are comfortable with a platform that they can innovate on on a server or on their laptop, that's where the innovation will come from to define that new class of intermediate thing. Now, there will still be the light bulb, and that's its own thing and will always be its own thing. Um, What they can do there is kind of incredible. Um, right, but, but the light bulb will end up being an app that's talking to it'll an be a sensor, system. effectively yes. an actuator, an endpoint in the graph, and it's that middle piece, the control plane, um, that's interesting. And that's almost certain to, to be Linux in some flavor or other, isn't it? Well, Microsoft's done a very, I think, appropriately smart thing. They made Windows free for IoT. They right. said, okay, if you're building that class of device, <laughs> okay. go ahead and do that. <clears throat> and that's sensible because they understand that the business models there are not going to be about taxing the platform. Right. They're going to be about the apps and the set, the services and the ecosystems that you can create there. Unfortunately for them, most of those developers have long moved to Linux. Yes. So I think the two ones to watch will be Google and Ubuntu. Google has said that they will create a version of Android called Brillo. Which is this. just, it's Linux too, right? So At heart, yes. yes. It's, a, it's Linux, but not as we know it, yes. Um, uh, but there's a there's a story there. It's plausible. Mm-hmm. There's a community of developers and ecosystem device guys who know how that works and can work with it. It's a starting point. And then we're coming from it, coming at it from the perspective of the server, essentially. All that stuff that's happening on the cloud, 70% of that is on Ubuntu. That's likely to come across to this middle middle ground as well. And um, obviously, from you know Google's Google's pitch has always been we want the technology to work well because we end up in a better position to serve ads if people are successfully using the technology. But they've also collected information as part of, part of what they do uh, uh, to make their ads better. Um, is that going to be a privacy and security flashpoint for things like Brillo and uh, uh, your approach to uh, the Internet of Things? Well, I think there's two stories in that gateway. One is the local control. So not every bit of data has to, you know, go to the cloud. A lot of the data can actually be analyzed in the building, as it were, Mm -hmm. and decisions taken in the building. And there, um, I think it's more about the control flow flow and the flow of money associated with the services. Um, But it's not so much a privacy issue because the data is is still inside the building, effectively. But, yes, the, the, all of the public clouds are making very substantial investments in the sort of back-end data infrastructure that would handle a torrent of data from connected devices and the Internet of Things. Which we all probably want, right? We, the, we, we, we would like a system in which the, um, the street lights turn on only if there's actually somebody in the street, sure. right? And you can save a whole bunch of money yeah, if you just if they just go out if there are no cars. It's very seductive. Right? Yes, right. exactly. Let me let me give you my password <laughs> <laughs> because you'll make my life easier. <laughs> well, that's right. And so that's the question: is uh, um, a, who's going to make that call? Uh, the consumer when they buy the 
the package of server and sensors that go in their house? Well, I think we, we can predict that because it's happened before, right? We know that consumers will want it for free, will give everything away, and then complain after the fact, right? That's, so, that, that, so that's the American way, but apparently it's, it's You know how to play that game, right? Um, so, no, I think, the, I think the, the cloud side doesn't change. There's going to be a flow of data in there, and there'll be arguments as to who, who should see what. Um, and under what circumstances, and that's no different for IoT. There is this new class of, you know, software that's going to run in the building, as it were, in this distributed cloudy-type infrastructure, Mm -hmm. and I think control of that is going to be interesting. That's what's at stake right now, Um, and and, um, that'll be new. And... From your point of view, and this is this sort of ties to the phone business. Um, the reason that Android works for Google is they get a bunch of data, sure. uh, and and they can afford to give it away. Uh, what works for Apple is they just make a cool but rather expensive bunch of hardware, and they sell the hardware. Uh, and I've certainly heard people complain that uh, their versions of Google Now, their versions of the voice of Siri, just aren't as good because they don't have as much data about you. They can't say to you as easily, you better, you better start now because you've got a flight in two hours and there's a traffic jam on I-66 uh, uh, because it doesn't know all of those things. Um, and so thinking about building a new phone operating system, where do you think there's an opportunity for somebody new to come in? Is it on the side of collecting the data in a better way or a, a, a more appealing way, or is it just that it will be really cool technology and cheaper than Apple's? Um, no, I think the, the two questions, the one is, do you aspire to be you know, uh, a, a leader in that market, or do you want to be there for other reasons? Um, to me, it's really important for us to have a view on personal computing and try to be at the front of personal computing and to give this class of developer who love to kind of invent the next big thing um, a, a, a kind of personal computing that they can use to do that inventing, right? Ah, okay. So the, we are 70% of that cloud infrastructure because 70% of those developers use us as their preferred thing that they use to get stuff done. And um, I, you know, I sincerely believe that we have to invest in personal computing to be part of that. Also, um, you know, I, I, no field of technology is ever done, right? Personal computing until 2007 was about the PC. After 2007, it suddenly was not about the PC, mm-hmm. right? And so you have to be there if you want to be part of each wave of disruption. Um, uh, our view on that is that your personal computer will be a single device. It'll probably never come out of your pocket. It will be an intensely personal device. You know, the privacy is going to be a galvanic a network. Everything thing. that touches you will touch the network. Right? Yes. If, you, <laughs> if, you, if, if you let it. Um, and and uh, and it will then drive all these other experiences. Today, those might be PC experiences, tablet experiences, phone experiences. Tomorrow, those might be augmented reality experiences. And so, although our grip on all of this is very tenuous, it's extremely difficult to be tiny and and um, yeah, well, wa- wa- you, wave a stick at the at the big guys. You've been successful by giving it away, which always raises the question of you know when you're going to make money. But uh, uh, certainly does every <laughs> single year. <laughs> That's what I would have thought. You know, it's it's but it's it's Jeff Bezos's business model. It's just that he always crept over into the black, and you haven't quite done that. But no, fair uh, enough. Uh, you know, he's he's just pouring his. I money wouldn't mind back. crawling over. Into the black. <laughs> exactly. You finish the marathon. You finish the marathon, right? <laughs> So, um, so yes, for, for me, again, I think it's, it's clear that being, you know, having demonstrated our ability to go into these new fields and then be a substantial platform is, is what's useful. On cloud, I feel super confident about um, what's happening there. We're the only platform that can essentially give people um, a unified experience across every public cloud, which is what they really want. No right. one wants to be stuck on one cloud or another. Um, and, and indeed private cloud as well, right? The ability to do the same thing in your own data center that you need to do or you choose to do in public, you know, for whatever reason elsewhere. Stitching all of that together requires a common 
platform, a common address or thing. I think we're now in the position to do that. So uh, let's let's raise the privacy and security issue to the cloud as well, and, and security in particular. We haven't seen a lot of security or meltdowns in the cloud, or at least we, you know, well, we haven't seen them. Uh, and uh, and yet. Uh, and and in, in many ways, you say, well, you've got a hypervisor. The hypervisor prevents a lot of the code from actually touching the metal, and so you can watch what's happening with that code. That's very good. But who's watching the hypervisor would be my question. And if you screw up, your entire data could end up, you know, uh, not in San Francisco but in Shanghai. Uh, and and so one of my questions is, where do you see the big security challenges in the cloud, and how good a job are we doing at meeting them? Well, there's a, there's a policy security challenge, uh, which is why we've got data centers in Germany that are plausibly German now, right? right? And so I think people at least want to feel that they know who's knocking when the knock comes, right? There's a, there's a sense of fair play and all of that, and I, I think at the end of the day, what will win there is fair play, right? Mm-hmm. The sense that, right, come knocking and you'll get what you're entitled to. The cloud does make, in that sense, law enforcement's job much easier because there's a third party who can take a snapshot of the data as it was, and provide it under the right circumstances. You don't have the, you don't need forcible but you don't have seizure to do what this, of data. Uh, right? The uh, um, seizure of the hard drive Precisely, uh, in the home. Right. disruptive. Mm-hmm. So, but fair play, I think, will 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 we'll win out there. We have seen deep compromises, right? We know that um, somebody got deep into Google's infrastructure and stole a bunch of data, much to Google's surprise. Um, and I bet the same has happened elsewhere. But as you say, it hasn't emerged. Um, uh, I, th- I think regardless, public cloud will win in the sense that I've no doubt that the vast majority of future computing will happen on shared infrastructure, which is super interesting. It's a dramatic change. And and you think that the cloud is more secure than just a Windows network running on uh, a, an actual physical network? Because they're um, well, how, how secure would you say just a Windows network running in just an average building I, I is likely to be? I would say not very. Right, no, exactly. I, I, I have told people, and I, I'm, I think it's highly likely that Gmail is more secure against most attacks than any network that a law firm could create for itself. Uh, a, that, uh, but that raises the question, you know, if that's where the data is and that's where you're going for security, then the attackers are going to go looking for ways into cloud uh, networks. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it strikes me as impossible to believe that there aren't laws that uh, can be exploited. The question is... Uh, how good are we at spotting them and patching them? Well, I think the good news in that regard is that all of the major cloud providers, so t- today that globally that is Amazon, Microsoft, Google, um, all of them are super professional. They, right. you, you have the world's best technologists looking at that infrastructure, which is not true of the average bit of IT inside the average company. So well, I, I think it is a can, step forward can, in that regard. And, and they're, they're in a position... You know, one of the big problems, and we can talk about this about Linux, in uh, deploying software is that you've got to be backward compatible. You've got to take care of all your uh, legacy applications. But if you're in the cloud, you know, the hypervisor isn't really a legacy. You can you can change that on the fly, and nobody notices, hopefully. Right. Um, and so they can they can keep making security patches at that level. Um, every day. Right, and you get the benefit of that continuous improvement and the better economics and so on, yes. So for all of those reasons, I, I have no hesitation to sort of recommend that people use the public cloud. It's right. a very professional infrastructure. It's only going to get better economics and better um, um, uh, performance and so on. And um, as long as we can give people confidence in due process and, and the uh-huh. justice approach to what's running there, then there's no reason for people not to do it, which is why guys like Microsoft take that very seriously. Oh, Their reputation, absolutely. whether it's a, a hacker attack or a legal attack, it's their reputation ultimately, and that's why they're fighting for it. So the, there was an article in the Washington Post about two weeks back that said that uh, uh, Linus Torvald's approach to security has been to be very skeptical about change. Uh, if it will break the user experience in some fashion, which sounded a lot to me like Microsoft's approach of, of saying we have to support our legacy applications at all costs, which introduces 
a reluctance to make changes for security. Uh, that was the burden of the, the article. And I wondered whether Linux bears that burden more and more as it acquires more and more legacy uh, applications. No, there's, there's some very artful deception in the way that story was being played out. I mean, what's really going on there is that there's a, there's a crowd of startups that want to uh, make a name for themselves. And so the easiest way to do that is to, you know, is to, is to say that the current the current emperor has no clothes, oh, effectively. Okay. Right. And that's simply not true. So the two halves of that. First, Linus, who, as you say, is responsible for the kernel, has this very strong dictum, which is don't, just because you think you've had a clever idea, um, do something which would make all of that great software out there suddenly stop running. In right. other words, you have, no, you have no ability to understand the extent to which that would create pain for everybody else out there. So just because it looks like a good idea to you, don't do it. But that's not the same as saying that that's, that software can't get more secure. So, for example, just in the last two, three years, we've done a bunch of work uh, together with guys at Google and elsewhere to enable uh, an application running on top of Linux to be genuinely isolated in, in, in whole new ways. It doesn't know that it's isolated. It just okay. thinks it's a little bit lonely. But the reality is... You know, everything that it needs to talk to the kernel about, it's still talking to the kernel about. The kernel has created a layer of fiction around it, which allows us to observe it and secure it and monitor it and so on. That technology, you know, we invested in that specifically because we wanted to isolate applications on a mobile phone from each other. Which you absolutely have to do. Right. You don't want uh, some cute game reading your address book or worse, right? So uh, that's why we were interested in it. It turns out exactly the same technology is useful for keeping, you know, somebody who's penetrated a web server from getting to all of the other content or systems or services on that same machine. And exactly the same technology is useful for in IoT, keeping one control application separate from another control application um, on the same system. And Linus is exactly right to say that whatever else you innovate around, don't suddenly invalidate all that old software. Um, he's just a, he's a convenient punching bag because uh, yeah, he's yeah. the emperor, right? Exactly. And so it generates great headlines and makes good copy. But uh, he, uh, he's absolutely right in, in the approach he's taking. So I, I promised I would ask a, a kind of a deep philosophical question uh, as well, uh, uh, because I, when, when, when we first met, I remember vividly what going out to rent a car in uh, Silicon Valley uh, when you were getting ready to do your deal, uh, and you complained to me that you couldn't get the discount for being over 26. Uh, uh, and so you sold your company. You did what any single 26-year-old with uh, half a billion dollars would do and went to space. I'm surprised more of them haven't. Uh, and then, you know, but I remember thinking to myself, God, I'm really glad I wasn't in a position to decide what the hell I wanted to do with the rest of my life at the age of 26 because I would have screwed it up. Uh, there are folks, you know, every year who end up in your position. So let me ask, you've obviously had a great time with sort of your second act. Uh, what What's your advice to the next set of 26-year-olds that end up with more money than they need for the rest of their lives uh, uh, to make sure that the rest of their lives actually feel meaningful? Well, um, that's obviously a very personal decision that only a very few lucky people get to take. But I, I think at the end of the day, you've got to feel you've got to feel really good about it, and that's true for anybody. You know, you've got to feel like you you um, you made a difference, and if you have the great privilege of being able to make a difference at scale, then you'd be crazy not to because you're, you're really not going to like yourself. Um, and I, I see lots of evidence that people do. We live in, a, I think, a very dangerously asymmetric world at the moment because you know some things have gone global a lot faster than other things. Mm -hmm. right? Your ability to earn uh, has gone global far, 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 far faster than your ability to contribute back to society has gone global, right. Right? says the guy who lives in the Isle of Man. <laughs> but the 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 point is therefore there's i think an overwhelming obligation on that shrinking group to make a big difference um and uh and whether that's in inventing the technology that gets us through kind of species threatening changes like climate change or or ai um i think that's fun and you so could you're you're a, something of an ai pessimist then um, I'm an AI inevitabilitist right. and a soon, sooner than you might think right. guy. I think well, it's, it's inevitable it's, and it's, soon. We're sure going to be sooner than we think because it's going to be a big surprise that's to happen very fast. <laughs> well, it's one of those, it's one of those overnight changes that take three decades, yes. right? 
um, but it will feel like an overnight change, and it will be sooner than any of us are comfortable with, um, and it will be an, an enormous disruption, just like the neck before it and various other things. Um, uh, but I think we'll be fine on that one. I, I am struggling toward, I have this sense, which I have never been able to bring finally to ground, that cybersecurity, both the attacks and the response to the attacks, is a place where artificial intelligence is naturally going to be a high uh, priority because uh, it, it's a lot of money at stake and you can put a lot of money into finding ways around the attacks and then you have to find ways to beat the attacks and people are going to adapt evolutionary Darwinian styles of uh, AI computing to address those problems and yeah, but I think that that's the beauty of this disruption is that it's, it's tempting to describe it as a thing that's going to really change the very hard stuff right. you know? but, but actually it's, it's a thing that's going to make me obsolete like the way I tell my friends about this is that I will be unemployable in 20 years because and not just because I'm old and cranky like you <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been old and cranky in, forever <laughs> in, in your field that's an asset in mine it isn't right but in 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 the sense that in the sense that none of us are going to be able to make decisions faster or better right right and we already see that it used to be that you know, in every town, there was a general manager of the general store, right? right. The guy at the Walmart who was making the decisions as to what to buy. Right. And that and, job and doesn't who, exist who, anymore. Who to give right. credit to and all of those things. They're totally right. divorced. They turned into data and moved right. to Silicon Valley. 50 guys making an algorithm and a whole bunch of machines processing the data. So that hollowing out, I described it earlier as this weird asymmetry, that hollow, hollowing out is very real today. Where, where it's going to sort of really surprise people is when it gets to the top of the pyramid, and it's um, it's going to happen entertainingly soon. Okay. Uh, well, we're going to leave that as the the last word, unless you've got some uh, speeches coming up that you want to talk about. Uh, otherwise, I will uh, um, thank uh, uh, Mark Shuttleworth, uh, Michael Vadis, uh, Alan Cohn. Uh, I we invite feedback uh, from our listeners, and I'm going to propose a new form of feedback. I, I, I'm not particularly, uh, I'm too cheap to really be part of the Apple uh, uh, ecosystem, uh, uh, but I went to uh, to look up uh, the Stepto Cyber Law podcast on iTunes, and it didn't have any reviews or not enough to, to get uh, published reviews. So I'm going to ask the people who are listening uh, Please go to uh, iTunes and review us, and review us kindly, if you would, uh, uh, in particular. Uh, so that's the request for the end of the podcast. This has been Episode 89 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, and we hope you'll join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>